I'm Madison Griffiths, and you're listening to Tender, a podcast about what happens after women leave abusive relationships, about the complex and murky and magnificent steps they take to disentangle themselves from the past. If this is the first episode you've tuned into, I'd recommend going back to episode one. That way, you can get to know me and my story without having to fill in the gaps. Now, where were we? Previously on Tinder, I graduate into the world of singledom, of parties and thoughtless nights and online dating profiles, and I even start seeing someone. It doesn't last though, I think largely because I haven't stopped to answer an integral question, one which sounds corny as heck but is still important. Who am I? And what do I want out of life from here on end? I also did a phone call from the past. It's my ex. He says he misses me and he says it nicely. He means it. And while I'm polite, perhaps too polite really, my mind wanders to visions of my mum and my dad. I think also about my friends, the ones who picked up the pieces when I flew in from London, tired and sweaty. Even, if not for me, I can't let them watch as I grovel back. It's time to cut ties, sort of. But left over from the other universe are hours and hours of waiting for him to kiss me, and here they are just hours. That's Olivia Datwood performing a snippet of her poem, Alternate Universe, in which I am unfazed by the men who do not love me. Here, they're a bike ride across Long Island in June. Here, they're a novel read in one sitting. Here, they're arguments about God or a full night's sleep. Here, I hand an hour to the woman crying outside of the bar. I leave one on my best friend's front porch. Send my mother two in the mail. I do not slice his tires. I do not burn the photos. I do not write the letter. I do not beg. I do not ask for forgiveness. I do not hold my breath while he finishes. The man tells me he does not love me, and he does not love me. The man tells me who he is, and I listen. I have so much beautiful time. I remember the way my body throbbed and tiny goosebumps swelled on the back of my arms the first time I heard her. In the deep, dark cavities of the internet existed a community of wordsmiths with stories of hardship, comedy and regret. With flamboyance, they were able to make even the most passive bystander feel ignited with passion. So, I had made it a New Year's resolution of mine to give spoken word poetry a shot. Spoken word events include Hi Justine, how are you? Um, I was hoping to pre-book a spot at Spoken Word tonight. Is 9pm okay? Uh, otherwise I'm Hi, more than happy Clara, to just register at the door. I would Thanks, absolutely Madison. love to submit myself to read as part of your Spoken Word event. I saw your post and um, I've, I've attached a few snippets here of, of some poems. I hope to hear back from you as this seems right down my alley. Um, kind regards, Madison. I don't know what it was about spoken word or poetry in general that seemed so obvious a pursuit to me. I liked the idea of reclaiming my sense of self, of telling my story but doing so in a way that was blaring and unapologetic, 
of standing before an eager audience like Olivia Gatwood did and does and feeling the warm lights and even warmer gazes of a supportive collective of poetry enthusiasts. I think a part of me thought that, if for nothing else, a couple of measly clicks and their quiet applause would make up for everything. The therapeutic nature of poetry is by no means surprising. It is a happy marriage of two healing practices, talking and creating. And so, I'd recite poems. Poems about long nights and the flimsy touch of a stranger during an even flimsier drunken debacle of my ex's thumbs as they dug themselves deep into my shoulder blades during our last evening together, the light in the living room making his face honey-coloured, warm of waves and what it means to dream about them, the big kind, from an ocean that boasts extraordinary darkness, of closing your eyes, of poison, of syrup, of horseshoe rings like the one my godfather gave me on my 18th birthday, of repetition, of repetition, of repetition. There was so much to write. I don't have a name for this poem yet, and it's really short, um, but here it is. Where's the lens cover he'd spit as he held my camera so delicately? What happens if it cracks? I watch enviously, the object so secure in his steady hands and wonder what it feels like to be held in such a way, to not feel the pressure of his thumbs digging into my shoulders. Shoulders belonging to an object just as shiny, just as valuable, but with softer edges, ten fingers, flushed cheeks. Thanks. But there was another element to sharing my poetry that I hadn't even considered. It was the element of solidarity, the strange invitation my poetry became an invitation for women with similar experiences to reach out to me. And so, when I started posting my poetry online, an entire collection of women came forward to say yes. We get it. Rachel McKibbins, who actually delivered a TED talk on the therapeutic nature of poetry, referred to this instance of connection as the electricity that one gets when you recognize yourself in another. And that's exactly what it was. Something shocking and dangerous and illuminating. Electricity, all right. But it's silly to talk about poetry as if it were just something I plucked out of a jar of potential New Year's resolutions. It was deliberate. Looking back, a part of me chose it as a form of protest. A protest made of two parts, I think. Firstly, my spoken word pursuits were a kind of demonstration. I stood on stage as if holding a placard that read, I left. I got out of there before it got too late. And here I am telling my story, telling it loudly and not giving a single fuck. And then there was something else. I was protesting something much larger and perhaps a little silly. The New Year's is right around the corner. So I'm seeing everyone with their New Year's resolutions and a lot of people have a resolution to lose weight. And I think that is great. I think that it's awesome to make that type of lifestyle change. 
I'm Lisa Bernbach for Houdini, and I want to lose weight every January. Everybody is making some New Year's resolutions, and I can guarantee some people have one certain New Year's resolution, and it's to lose weight. And if it's not to lose weight, it's to get healthier or fitter, or you know, just something to do with your body. In 2014, Glamour Magazine tweeted, come New Year, what diet will you be on in 2015? Women around the world responded with zany comebacks such as I'm on the resisting ongoing pressure from the media to be skinny diet and the why the fuck would I be on a diet diet. Every year my New Year's resolution had to do with me becoming smaller and in many ways spoken word poetry proved the opposite of that. It was about taking up more space, about forging a Madison-sized rupture in a poorly lit Fitzroy bookstore and filling it really filling it, every last cavity. While in my relationship, according to him, I took up too much space. I'm just not attracted to you, he would tell me eventually. He would curse and get frustrated if I purchased food that wasn't healthy, would roll his eyes and pick up a stink if he found me eating it, eating popcorn or drinking a can of soft drink. He would police my body, as if it weren't mine at all, but an unruly extension of himself that he had to constantly keep in line. Louise Adams, a clinical psychologist based in Sydney, keenly compares the weight loss industry with abusive partners, claiming that the way abusers cling to our insecurities and sprinkle salt into the wounds they've already created echoes what the weight loss industry does to women, how it relies on our internalised self-hatred to make money, to achieve its purpose. There's also something really telling about how we speak about weight loss, about the way we describe women in before and after binaries. They're often told to be the sort of women who harbour secrets, unspoken habits and quiet confessions about sustenance that they need or don't, about the time they wake up and go to sleep, about juices and laps around the park and activewear and lots and lots of tears. But while a picture can tell a thousand words, what you're really after is their secret. Hey guys, today we're gonna to be talking about seven steps or seven secrets to lose weight fast. In this video, I'm gonna be telling you guys the secret to losing weight. You are getting ready to leave this video knowing the biggest secret to weight loss, okay? I had secrets too, similar secrets when it came to my body, or rather, my boyfriend did. He claimed to see me for who I really was. He was a man with exclusive and covert information about the shape of my thighs and the way my muscles waned and the whereabouts of my fat. He may as well have named every last dimple because he could trace them. The secret was uncomplicated. I'd be better looking if I was smaller. And for women in abusive relationships, that's only the first domino. Our physical worth collapses like a piece of polystyrene plastic onto the rest of our insecurities. If I just lose weight, if I just dress better, if I just grow my hair out, if I just stay quiet more often, perhaps then things will get better. Perhaps then I will reap the rewards and all of that strain and burden will be our little secret. Sometimes I wonder what would have happened if I kept shrinking. 
because things that shrink and diminish again get lost. Things that shrink make everything else around them look bigger. And when I think about my tininess when the two of us were together, how it was really just meant to correspond with his self-proclaimed bigness, to make him larger, more substantial, I imagine a man now with the same shaped glasses and the same coloured hair as him. But this man is tiny. I nearly crush him with my colossal feet. Without a shrunken woman on his arm, he is just a man. I write poems about shaving my legs, kissing my best friend in her bedroom, mastering the art of concealing the blood stain on the back of my jeans, which is to say I write poems about girlhood, queerness, shame. Today, I want to talk to you about how our smallest memories can connect us to the larger world. That's Olivia Gatwood again at a TED Talk in Albuquerque. And in this particular TED Talk, she captures exactly why it is her work always resonated with me. Because the story I wanted to tell when I decided that I wasn't going to diminish in size in the new year of 2016 was a large one, sure. But it was made of a kind of treasury of tiny moments, of the incidental insult, of the sound of coffee being poured on the crisp linen of an angry and heartbroken girl in a public park in Darwin, of smiley face-shaped pancakes during the good moments, and a tiny tattoo the shape of a Venus symbol on my left arm, one I got to remind myself that he is not the driving force in my life. If I can sit through the dull ache and hum of a needle shooting fluid into my skin, I can leave. In the words of Olivia Gatwood, our smallest memories can connect us to the larger world. Progress doesn't have a timeline. Recovery and relapse wait for nobody. Which is why, despite succeeding in not making contact with my ex, when my two dogs, Jesse and Miles, passed away, I felt ruined. Jesse died of old age. Miles, however, died suddenly. And it was a tragedy that still haunts us, I think. Ted Kusa, a poet and essayist, wrote a poem entitled Death of a Dog that captured so eloquently my feelings of being torn apart, of every part of myself patchy and rambling and directionless, of aching and longing. It goes a little like this. The next morning, I felt that our house had been lifted away from its foundation during the night and was now adrift, though so heavy it drew a foot or more of whatever was buoying it up not water, but something cold and thin and clear, silence riffling its surface as the house began to turn on a strengthening current, leaving, taking my wife and me with it, and though it had never occurred to me until that moment, for 15 years our dog had held down what he had by pressing his belly to the floors. His front paws too, and with him gone, the house had begun to float out onto emptiness. No solid ground in sight. 
The mechanics of grief destroy foundations, destroy the walls you've built and the timber frames you've used to balance your edges. The footing I had come to know recently, the sort that had me looking within, had me standing before a crowded bar and reading words aloud in a bid to relieve myself of something, had suddenly disappeared. Like Ted Cooser wrote, I was floating. And when you hover desperately above a world that you don't yet understand, the easiest thing to do is to grab a hold of what you know. So I shrunk again. I clung to my phone. I typed out a message beneath his name and I told him of these sacred details, of death, of hurt and suffering. I couldn't tell you or him why it was him that I messaged and I'm glad he didn't ask. The exchange was brief, but it happened, and I hate that it did. Before I tell you what to expect in episode four of Tender Podcast, I want to thank you all for your feedback, for your ratings and for your messages and emails and comments Every single one makes this whole experience, this whole project worthwhile. I also want to thank Paul Mikhail Podosky, who has gently observed as I have become a little reclusive during this process, for wiping tears away when I've doubted my own worth and when I've become stuck in the past a little over the last few weeks. If you like what I'm doing and you want to help, there are so many ways that you can. You can subscribe on iTunes or even better, write a review. The more feedback that can be traced back to Tender, the better. And if you want to make sure I don't have to put the brakes on Tender in the near future, you can donate a couple of dollars toward the podcast. Just go to tenderpodcast.tumblr.com and on the left-hand side, you'll see a button that says Donate. I'm Madison Griffiths and thank you for listening to Tender. But before you go... In episode four, I start getting published by big names about big stuff. And so, without a second thought, I write an article for a large media company that details the emotional abuse I endured. And in the time it takes for me to take it all back and hide underneath my desk, every single person I know has read it, including all of his friends and his family. Also, I reach out to an old crush.